Welcome to the Opera Biz Podcast, uncut and unfiltered, where we hang out with opera professionals and talk about life inside the industry. I'm your host, Daniel Welch. So I do a I do a lead in that's automated that's like automated. So cool. I won't have to little do pre roll thing. Do a little intro. All right. Um, but thanks for taking the time to chat. Yeah, you're absolutely. Still man. Time. You you're totally done with flute now, right? Uh, no, we had the second to last one last night, and we have the final eighth performance uh, tomorrow night. That's right. And then that's for the right. first time in my career, I'm doing like back to back gigs. Yeah. So I got a show on Saturday night. And then I have a rehearsal at 2 p.m. in Toronto on Sunday. <laughs> oh, at least it's Toronto. Yeah, it's not like, like Taiwan or something. <clears throat> yeah. But, uh, yeah, so that's going to be a trip. What's the what's that gig? I'm going to be doing Cozy up in uh, Toronto at the Canadian Opera Company. Nice. Yeah. So what, what's cool. the When's that run? Um, I think that we open in early February, so we've got like a solid month of rehearsal, nice. which would be cool. I've heard it's a, a complex production. Looks is cool. It a, is it a newer, like what's the take on it? Is it traditional or is it going to be a newer take? Do you know? You know, I have not looked into it. I know that there's, it's, it seems kind of Tamor-esque in yeah, that yeah, I, yeah. I think there's butterflies and kind of big visual yeah. uh, things, so I'm not really sure. It's kind of... That's kind of one of the nice things is that, especially with the role you've done as many times as I've had the pleasure to sing Ferrando, you can show up and know the music and just be like, okay, well, whatever happens from here, I just get to sort of uh, go with the flow, you know? It also, for a role that you've sung repeatedly, makes it the production really fresh. You, yeah. Which is really nice. Yeah, it's as nice opposed to, to just do, phoning in the same old stuff. Right. It's nice to do a fresh production. You just hope that, as I, I think the case will be with this one, you hope that you show up for a month-long rehearsal process, and like day five, you're not like, oh god, this is, gonna, <laughs> this is gonna be a long month. Yeah. <laughs> you know, weirdly, I did I think three productions of Cozy last year, and while they all had their charms and their like bright spots and everything like that, weirdly, I think the one that I might have had the most fun doing on stage was both the simplest production in terms of the stage and also had the shortest rehearsal period. It was in Frankfurt and I think we rehearsed for nine days. We had like an 11 day period, nine of which were rehearsals and mm -hmm. then we opened. And uh, boy, there's nothing that makes you be on your toes. <laughs> like uh, like only having run through the show beginning to end once. That was my first gig in Germany and um, it was really cool. I like the way they do it over there. That, I mean, that right there is a huge testament to why directors hire, or whoever's doing casting, hire people who have sung the role before. Sure, yeah. Uh, you know, we always say, well, I could sing that. You know, singers all the time, well, I could sing that. Right. But you haven't yet, and well, if your rehearsal period is going to be less than two weeks. Right. <laughs> and I mean, that still happens all the time. It does. You know, especially in Europe. But, uh, but yeah, there's just no one matter. more. One more arrow in the quiver. Yeah, exactly. No matter how company. well you know the music, it's kind of one of those things where I still feel like this when I learn a new role. It's like, well, I'm pretty sure I know this. <laughs> and you show up the first day of rehearsal, and you're like, now we find out. Yeah. You know? And of course, you know, luck favors the prepared. Right. And, uh, and never, you know, never allow yourself the opportunity to be underprepared. Uh, and it, it, it works out. But there's always that inevitable moment where you're like, I just blanked out on those two measures. Like, yeah. What, what went there? Well, and if, if it's a role you've sung before, inevitably you have spent weeks with it brewing in your mind, thinking about it and, yeah. and how it works, and it's it's a little more automatic in that way, which 
which can be good. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of, so how many times have you sung Tamino? Tamino, that's a good question. It was the first opera I saw when I was a kid. Uh, it was the first opera I was in in college. Uh, I was a film major in college, and uh, I was doing choir and music on the side, and they kind of twisted my arm into taking voice lessons, and of course they always need tenors. Uh -huh. So I auditioned, and I sang Tamino there my sophomore year, Albert Herring my junior year. But anyway, since college, the next time I sang Tamino, I think was... Ah, yeah. I sang Tamino with the Metropolitan Opera of Los Angeles. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which I don't know how they haven't gotten sued. I think it's because it's such a small company. They might not even be actually, like, legally a company. Yeah. Um, it was a couple um, women who lived in, like, Pasadena who put together a, an opera company and paid people 100 bucks, and it was... Uh, it was within a matter of weeks after I left my job in the world of television and decided to start singing again. So that was number two. My next time was at LA Opera in the fall, uh, or no, the spring of, I want to say, 16. And then winter of 16, I did it here at the Met. And then again this year. Oh, and one more in Philadelphia. So I can't count that high, but I think it's six or seven. What's your What's your most frequently performed role? Um, You know, it's... It's it's a uh, it's I, I guess I could probably count up the number of performances, but it's gonna be it's gonna be a draw between Tamino, uh, Ferrando in uh -huh. Così, and uh, Belmonte in Abduction. So okay. if you were noticing a trend there, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I think Mozart might be the the common thread. It's funny because we were we several of my friends and I were talking about right after the last Così, uh, the I saw two shows ago. Uh, two or three? Two? You mean the the one here at the Met? Yeah, yeah. But whatever it was, a couple of weeks last week, week and a half ago. Anyways, we were discussing the fact that you make singing Mozart tenor rep sound easy. Oh well. That's... And Mozart tenor rep is a bitch. <laughs> I mean, it's just for so many tenors, it sits in a really uncomfortable spot, and mm. I I always think that he just wasn't the biggest fan of tenors, or or he had it out for somebody particularly. But yeah, maybe there's a lot of. Uh, there's a lot of, um, it's not delicate singing, I would say, but some delicate maneuvering mm -hmm. uh, in the Passaggio area. You spend a lot of time there. Um, yeah, it's it's not like flooring it on a straightaway. It's kind of more like some hairpin turns and, yeah. and executing those transitions and everything. Um gracefully uh I, I i enjoy that and i think it's something that my voice naturally tends to be able to do and i've had the luck to have some really really solid technical training that has helped me to kind of solve some of my own problems and get out of my way and so anyway yeah i i, I love singing that stuff it's a lot of fun and uh i hope there's lots more of it do you see yourself moving in any specific direction besides that right now are you working on some other stuff that's a little yeah. different well you know i would be really really happy to move into some of the lighter bel canto stuff for mm -hmm. instance there's some stuff that i feel like um i for sure should have sung by now but haven't haven't had the chance to i've <laughs> never never sung nemorino um uh -huh. i did one alfredo uh in traviata at wolf trap uh in like 2013 which i loved and i'd love to do that again maybe not in a 4,000 seat house but you know it's in there and uh, I've done uh, a Rake's Progress, which I love. I'm going to mm -hmm. do that again uh, at a place we're all <laughs> familiar with. Uh, in, that's not for another two or three years or something. Um, 
I really, really am always looking for a good chance to sing some Britain. Yeah. Uh, the Rape of Lucretia is one of my two or three favorite operas of all time. Um, programmatically, of course, it's a challenge. But anyway, yeah, I mean, uh, shoot, man, I love singing uh, La Donna Mobile, like in my dressing room and Rodolfo <laughs> and everything like that. But when I was coming up in college, um, the biggest, hottest thing in the opera world was Netrepko and Viazon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they were ravishing, you know, and she still is. And he is still, you know, will always be a great artist. But I remember being, uh, you know, very aware and present when he had his sort of vocal issues. Um, and, you know, he was in his, what, late 20s or something, singing Tosca and Lucia and all this stuff back to back and traveling mm. the world, having a great time. But for that reason, you know, I really like singing, Mo singing Mozart. And it uh, is something that I don't find to be horrendously taxing yeah <laughs> and uh, and so i'm happy to stay in in my comfort zone as much as is uh healthy artistically yeah. vocally and everything like that but at the same time stepping outside of it in interesting ways when i can yeah you mentioned that obviously you've, you've got contracts two three years out what are your thoughts on that um that way of casting well, I do see the necessity of it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's a situation that's, um, you know, there's definitely two sides to that coin. Um, if you know any actors or Broadway people or something like that, you know, they'll be on tour with Wicked for two years and the tour ends and they're completely unemployed and have to go start auditioning and are completely back at square one. Yeah. Uh, I'm really glad that that is not the case with opera uh, <laughs> because just having some kind of security and knowing at least a skeleton of what your schedule will be for the next few years. Of course, I do agree that, you know, oftentimes you hear someone in a role and you're like, oh, well, that, that doesn't seem like it was maybe the right decision casting-wise, but, you know, they cast it four years ago. Right. And people's voices and techniques and approaches and color, all that can change um, significantly in that amount of time. And, um, yeah, also you, you might want to end up being headed in a different direction by the time that that contract actually rolls around. Um, but by the same token, there are some companies, big companies, that do cast a little bit later for the majority of their roles mm -hmm. uh, that I really like working with that, um, unfortunately, I don't have anything on the calendar with them because they call and ask and I'm already busy. Right. Um, so, you know, it would, be, it would be great to be a little more spontaneous with it. Um, but you know it's it's pretty unlikely that that situation will change i i do see some benefit to the opera world operating a little bit more like hollywood mm -hmm. in making a movie where you know someone will call and say we'd like to offer you this role this many performances this time period and if that was happening to make a film you'd say well that all sounds great, but of course you wouldn't say, you know, let me read the script. I know what Traviata is or whatever right. it may be, <laughs> but well, who's the director? Who else is in the cast? And what's the, you know, where is, is it, does it have a theatrical release or is it going to be on Netflix? And you get all those details. Right. And that's why, you know, 19 out of 20 screenplays that get bought uh, never get produced right. because this director is attached and so these actors come on board but then the director drops out and so the actors drop out and they do a rewrite and then nobody likes it so they rewrite it again and it then just it, sent, it ends up sitting on a shelf and nothing ever happens which would be bad for opera but I see uh, a, a lot of um, 
fertile ground in the idea of uh, a director and sort of like a troupe of singers coming together and saying, look, we have this production of X that we all want to do together. We tried it out here. We did it here. And instead of just buying a production from Lucerne, bring the entire cast in, like kind of an ensemble yeah. like that. And that way you can... Um, especially in the United States, have a little bit more of a festival atmosphere, which right. is more economical and um, more uh, productive. It cuts down on waste a lot. And you don't end up in a room full of strangers trying to make high art. You yeah. know, you, you, you already speak a common language and all that stuff. So anyway, to that end, I imagine we might segue into the, uh, <laughs> into the entrepreneurial uh, avenues that are opening up in this business that have to open up in this business. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit. So you, you and... Uh, Lachlan Glenn? Yes, have, have started some, a really interesting take on uh, live performance. Tell us a little bit about MESS. Yeah. So the company is called Mise-en-Scene Studios, and the acronym is MESS. And mise-en-scene was actually the title of my first textbook in film school. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but it applies here. And mise-en-scene roughly translates to um, the entire world of what you see, of what you experience when you see a performance. Mm -hmm. Be it, uh, you know, the mise-en-scene of a film is the world that the film builds from the opening credits to the, the final credits or whatever. And... Um, and we sort of took that name uh, to encompass the, the full experience of attending a classical arts event. Uh, from the time you get off the subway, to the social environment, to the vibe in the room, to the quality of the music, the other people that are there, the price point, the food, the drinks, everything like that. So Lachlan and I, Lachlan is a phenomenal pianist, coach, conductor, uh, and we met in the Lindemann program here at the Met. and. Um, we spent a lot of evenings having beers, whatever, uh, and discussing the state of things and our business. Um, and a lot of the classical music offerings in New York City are tremendously expensive. Mm -hmm. The cost of experimentation is very high, uh, which keeps younger audiences away. Also, the vibe sometimes is not really open, friendly, uh, potentially casual, welcoming. Um, it, it's it's sometimes feels a little more crusty, can mm -hmm. I say? Sometimes. Yeah. Uh, not you know, not to criticize, but but there's there's room for improvement in there. Um, and also the economic model that opera is based on. So it's a nonprofit model in this country. Um, and there are a lot of aspects of it, uh, certain agreements that were made decades ago opera houses that were built in the 1960s that, you know, look at cars built in the mid-1960s, or Buicks that weigh 7,000 pounds and get eight miles to the gallon. And we live in the era of the Prius and the Tesla and the performing arts institutions. Uh, it's difficult for them to pivot like that because of their size and union obligations, et cetera. And budgets are so thin mm -hmm. that there's not a lot of room for experimentation oftentimes on the stage, but for sure in terms of the business model and how they approach that. And um, finally, for artists, there are a lot of great singers that I went to school with who decided not to pursue a career in this field because they saw a very clear choice between having a normal life hmm. and pursuing this career, which is not uh, a new 
thing. I mean, that's right. been the thing. Artists have always been kind of itinerant, gypsy people, which is which is kind of cool. I like that. But uh, we thought that from the standpoint of economy of production and uh, everything like that, it would be great to have, for instance, New York is the largest performing arts market in the world. And yeah. the only place in the largest performing arts market in the world to earn a living wage as a classical singer is the Metropolitan Opera, mm -hmm. which is insane. Uh, there used to be two with City Opera, uh, but which, of course, is... Uh, ceased to exist now exists again in a much different form there's right. a great book about that called exit arias and uh what is it mad scenes and exit arias i, I think, think right. about city opera really super interesting really quick read to see learn a lot about how an opera company works and what leads to its success and its interactions with the community and its engagement and then what can lead to its demise anyway lachlan and i sort of compiled these points and said all right well let's do a bunch of research because mm -hmm. all these nonprofit opera companies have to post their um, budgets essentially online as a part of their filing compliance for nonprofit status. Uh, and a lot of other information is out, a lot of books, everything. And so we said, let's do some research and maybe we can come up with a new idea, mm -hmm. which is where MESS came from. So MESS is membership based. Um, a lot of opera companies uh, used to exist, and many of them still rely on a subscription model where people buy tickets to certain performances in advance, mm -hmm. which is, I think, not really viable. I don't know where, I mean, I guess I, I technically do, but most people are not going to say, well, you know what? November 12th, 2018, 11 months from now, I'll go to the opera that night. Yeah. It's like, yeah, right, yeah. you know? Um, so anyway... It's membership-based, which front-loads cash flow for the company. Um, for $99 membership, you get to come to as many of our events per year uh, as you can RSVP to. Uh, every event has an open bar. Uh, we cap the guest count at about 150. Mm -hmm. There are two 30-minute sets of music, and we strictly maintain world-class quality with our productions. We've had singers from the Met, headliners from Jazz at Lincoln Center, an uh, international award-winning chamber choir, um, lots of really interesting people, and you get to be really up close to it. Uh, we have over 215 members. Our average member age is 30, and it's really, really a lot of fun. It's a good group of people, you know, dressed to impress. The social aspect is phenomenal. You get really up close and personal with truly world-class artists. It's great. Um, and so the other thing is that it's built... Uh, on a track towards complete financial sustainability. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the opera companies in the United States earn, you know, the, the successful ones earn about 30% of their revenue from ticket sales. Right. And the rest they have to raise every year, which is tremendously uh, volatile. Uh, it's a big liability. If the economy goes south, opera's pretty much always been a luxury item. Right. And 2008, several opera companies went under because they couldn't raise the money. Well, I, I know so many people who have started opera companies because, it, you know, this is luckily we're in a day and age where if you don't have the gigs offered to you, mm -hmm. you can kind of make something happen. Yeah. Um, it's not as easy as people think it is. So right. you know, I, I know plenty of people who have tried to open an opera company, start an opera company from scratch, and it's tremendously didn't realize difficult. that 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 ratio that you just mentioned, that 30% comes from ticket sales. Yeah. And then everything else, you know, you have somebody who's uh, somebody or a team who's working full time right. to raise money. Which, which in itself, that team is a tremendous amount of overhead. Yeah. Uh, producing events and hiring these people and benefits. So anyway, we've structured our business model to 
diversify our revenue streams. So about one third of our revenue comes from membership and ticket sales. Mm-hmm. Uh, one third comes from um, an endowment that we are beginning to raise. So if you raise $10 million, you can plan on a fairly conservative return on investment of about 5% a year. Mm-hmm. So if you've got $10 million in the bank, that's, uh, what is that? Uh, 10% would be a hundred, uh, a million dollars. So yeah, 5% on $10 million is half a million dollars yeah. a year. That is just coming in the front door. Uh, so membership, Endowment, and then the other side is ticket sales. So basically, you come to our premiere events with the open bar and the two 30-minute segments for free, and then we sell tickets to members only for our bigger main stage events like operas and everything like that. And the flip side of all that is that we can offer, starting in a few years, uh, a salary to our ensemble of singers who will perform in many of the premiere events, will also perform main roles in some of our operas. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll have a, they'll gain a, you know, a real understanding and relationship with an audience in New York, which is humongous. They'll have a salary, they'll have benefits, they'll have a 401k matching contribution, all of that. And with those diverse revenue streams, uh, we, instead of having an entire development department, can have like a development person. Right. Because once that endowment is raised, we basically have no fundraising needs ever yeah. again. Um, and so anyway, lowers the cost of experimentation, provides some financial and artistic stability for singers and for people contributing to the company. It's like, well, do you think opera should be in front of young people? Do you think that it should be sustainable and exist forever? Cool. $10 million buys you an opera company that will exist in perpetuity without ever having to raise another dime, uh, will give jobs to young artists and, you know, bring our young demographic and put them in front of, uh, you know, young people. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's obviously more complicated than that. And we have a, in terms of running the company, but we're, we're really going for it. And it's, it's, it's working out really, really well. So if you're in, if you're listening to this and you're ever in New York, look us up, messnyc.com. Uh, come check out an event. It's uh, it's it's an exciting place to see some really exciting. And you guys do the first one for free. Yeah. So, so your first time is free. After that, you have to be a member. So yeah. even if you're in town for a week, come to an event for free. And then you know, if you only come to New York once a year, then you know that's fine. And your your membership bases are uh, annual or monthly, right? Right. We just launched launched the uh, monthly option. So mm-hmm. it's ninety nine dollars a year upfront or nine dollars a month, which ends up being a little more expensive. But you know, you say more expensive, but you go room. you go out to a bar in New York and you buy a beer and yeah. you've spent nine dollars and well, that includes yeah. nothing else. Right. Whereas your events, you're getting world class music. Yeah. You're getting something to drink, some food to hang out, but you're getting the experience of the performance and the people that are there and in a very intimate setting. So yeah. I mean, you're seeing you're seeing singers, performers, musicians, whatever that you would normally see from a stage. Right. But now gig. you're standing right next to it. Yeah, but now you're, you're close enough to feel the craftsmanship, feel yeah. the strings vibrating in the air around you. And uh, yeah, that's the thing. Ninety nine dollar membership. If you go to three movies at AMC every year and buy a bag of popcorn, then you're already in excess of that in New York City anyway. And uh, yeah, the, the value factor is really, really incredibly high. And yeah. we're trying to mirror a little bit more of like a tech startup yeah. business model uh, in that we're just onloading members and everything like that. And eventually, when we have a critical mass of members, while the membership cost might go up slightly, um, the value factor also will, because there are opera companies all over the country that have spent millions of dollars trying to figure out how to get millennials to come to the opera. Yeah. And we have very effectively done that for 
you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars in our spare time. Yeah. And uh, I think they're they're ripe partnership opportunities for mess to to you know get discounted tickets to Carnegie Hall or whatever. So it's exciting. Well, and, and for all the people that are afraid that because there's there are plenty of those opera purists out there that are afraid that well you know you can't take opera off the stage you know that if more people were doing stuff like mess and we had multiple opportunities to see a performance up close and personal very um, very affordably it's a it's less of an intimidating factor for somebody who's never seen an opera mm-hmm. who's never heard an operatic voice in person before whatever yeah. to see that and then it supplements the stage performance totally. in a big house. It, uh, You're it's, not, it's not a, it's not combating. It's easier to, it perpetuates the industry. Right. It's easier to experience and consume up close. And also, you know, I go back to my very first operatic memory of all time, which for many people born in the mid eighties, like me was watching the three tenors on TV. Yeah. Just like saw them on PBS. I remember listening to Pavarotti for just a second and being like, Holy crap. Rap. It was what I call the freak show factor. Yeah, you know, absolutely. It's like, how does he do that? That is insane. I can't do that. What? What is that? And it's a lot easier to get that up close. Mm-hmm. And also, lest we forget, as young singers, we are told often that is not the style that Mozart wrote this to be sung, and it has to be done like this. And your diction, which is great. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not advocating to throw all that out and, and you know, just make it up as you go along. That stuff is important. But then you take the style that Mozart wrote the opera to be performed in, and you take it off of the stage with about 650 seats in front of it that he wrote it to be performed in, and you put it in a house with three, four thousand people. It's very different. Yeah, it's a very different experience for everyone involved. And uh, I think that you kind of have to go back to those smaller audience sizes and get people close enough to have their hair blown back a little bit. And another experience that uh, that I feel like has been somewhat um, neglected, perhaps, within the opera-consuming experience is that... I love this story. The only reason the Metropolitan Opera ever existed is because Rockefeller, when Rockefeller was new money... Uh, there, I think it was the New York Opera Company or something like that, was the opera company in New York. And they only had a, a limited amount, uh, a, f- a fixed number of private boxes that you could buy out so you could go and hang out with your friends. And all of the, quote, old money uh, had all those boxes tied up. And Rockefeller's wife wanted to go to the opera and have a box with her friends to compare dresses and chat and hang out. And she couldn't get one. So he built the Metropolitan Opera so his <laughs> wife could have a box to go hang out with her friends. It's it's the social aspect of it has always been, you know, not maybe at the center of the conversation, but a driving force behind why it exists at all. Yeah. And, um, you know, you can still come to the opera with your friends and everything like that. But I think there are a lot of people in, in the past who have come to opera more for that even than the music. And again, while that's not a purist approach to getting people into the opera, if they're coming for the social aspect, chances are they're going to keep coming back and over time they will be exposed to the music and begin to appreciate it and everything like that. And, you know, again, in a nonprofit world where there is very little link between the economic value of what we produce and the cost to produce it mm-hmm. and everything like that. You have to you have to not allow yourself to say, oh, well, the reason that the seats aren't being filled is the audience's fault. They don't get it. 
Right. You know, if I go out and spend millions of dollars and hire the best engineers in the world to build the perfect car that gets 700 miles to the gallon and has the most comfortable seats and it only costs 20 grand and it's beautiful and nobody buys it. We live in a capitalist world, whether we like it or not. And it's not the consumer's fault for not buying the car. It's my fault. I have to go find out what they want and yeah. build it and give it to them. And the nonprofit model insulates you a little bit from that mm -hmm. so that you don't have to lower the standards and the quality and dumb it down and really meet people where they are. But you also don't want to be on the other end of that spectrum of just saying, well, I'm creating this masterpiece and if you don't get it, it's your fault. Yeah. There's, there's some middle ground in there. And anyway, with social media and the internet and um, everything like that, we live in an era when young performers, uh, in addition to mastering their craft and your technique, uh, which, you, which is absolutely job number one and always will be and should be, um, like you said, we, we need people to be entrepreneurial and to think creatively, whether it is just programming or whether it's creating a company or a platform for you to perform on uh, or, or, or anything like that. That for sure needs to be encouraged because um, in terms of switching things up in this business and finding new ways to approach it, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. Yeah. You know, there are, Show me an opera company with its own app. Right. I can name one, Opera Philadelphia, and they're they're one of the most innovative companies in the country. They yeah. spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on market research and completely changed the entire model of the way they present operas to reflect the way their audience was consuming opera. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's not a magic bullet, and I'm not saying that they're successful in every aspect now, but they, they do really interesting work. They yeah. get a lot of buzz. Anyway, think creatively, um, and even if you do so not to start your own company or to be entrepreneurial, damn, take a business class. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> because as a young singer, um, while your number one job is to sing well and to show up on time, be prepared and not be an asshole, as they say, which is 99% of the job, those three things, um, you're running a small business. Yeah. You are earning money, you have to pay taxes, you have to pay expenses, you have to deduct those expenses. And whether you like it or not, whether you have an aptitude for it or not, that is a huge part of your job. Mm -hmm. uh, when somebody offers you a contract saying, oh, that sounds great, that's a lot of money. All right, cool. Well, what are your expenses gonna be? Do you have to pay your own travel? Do you have to find a place to stay? Uh, are you paying an agent 10% or 20% if it's a concert thing? Are you putting aside 25 to 35% of what you make before you spend anything on taxes? All of that stuff, are you saving your receipts? And it, it, on the one hand, it can sound simple. On the other hand, it can sound overwhelmingly complex. Mm -hmm. It's not that bad, but it is a discipline, and it's something that you need to know how to do and start doing immediately yeah. because, honestly, it can affect your number one job, which is to sing well. If the end of the year comes and you're like, oh, shit, I owe $7,000 in taxes, mm -hmm. or I'm being audited, I don't have receipts for anything, how do I do my taxes? stresses you out yeah. and you're going to spend time doing that instead of learning your music so take a business class read a book talk to a tax person a parent or relative who runs a small business figure that shit out as soon as you can yeah <laughs> that's totally true well uh, that right there is is a huge part of my day-to-day -day working with singers is reminding them that they are a business you know that oh yeah 
Some Kings County Distilleries. So I wish we were like, I wish we could say brought to you by Kings County Distillery uh, bourbon, but we're not. I just brought some because I'm leaving town tomorrow and I got to finish it before I cross the border. <laughs> I, th- I feel like you could probably sneak this through Canada. Really? There's not a whole yeah. lot left. Yeah, probably. Although, weirdly, like some of the strictest like border dudes I've ever come across are like, like at the Canadian border. It's a trip. Not necessarily at the airport, more if you're driving across. But anyway. The driving across. I've been. I've been stopped coming back into the states several oh, yeah? times. I'm like, guys, I'm American with an American passport. Yeah, like, what the hell? That's good. Isn't that tasty? Nice. I got stopped yesterday. I was in the subway, uh, and this dude didn't look like a cop. He just came up to me in like a down coat, and he was like, "Hey, man, is that a knife in your pocket?" And I was all, "Whoa!" I was like, "What?" And I turned around, and he had his like little badge, his yeah. badge out. And he had it down by his like by his hip. He didn't want people to know he's a cop. And I was like, "Oh shit!" I was like, "Yes, it is." He was like, "What do you have that for?" I was like, "Well, I'm an Eagle Scout." <laughs> nice. I, I, you know, I was like, I, "I work in a theater. It's it's handy to have. Is it a problem?" And he was like, "Yeah, it's illegal to carry any kind of weapon onto New York City transit." And I was like, "Oh." Shit, I didn't know. Then he turned around and he handed it to like four other undercover cops that he was with. And one dude started like flipping it to see if it was a switchblade. Of course, yeah. the, the knife is like two and a half inches long. It's a teeny little thing. But anyway, it was intense. They didn't like take it. They were just like, all right, just like put this in your pocket. Don't let anybody see it. Don't have it out. It's like, shit. God, that's intense. Yeah, it was a trip. Man. And I was kind of like, there was part of me that was like, I was on my way to the Met to perform. And there was part of me that was like, what happens if I get detained? Yeah, he was like, he was like, where are you going? I was like, actually, I'm going to perform a lead role at the Metropolitan Opera in like an hour and a half. And he was like, cool. Well, have a good show. And I was like, oh, thank God. He <laughs> has a trip. Keeping you on your toes. Yeah, man. Oh. Yeah, it was a trip. Um, that said, I forgot it today, which I, it was probably a good thing. I might be in jail right now. Probably that same cop would like come and get me. That's my microphone freaking out. Yeah. Um, you know, you you mentioned um, a great tech startup word or small business entrepreneurial word earlier when you were talking about mess and used the term pivot. Mm. And um, that's something that people who are in tech now or building businesses, great startups, that kind of stuff, is a term that they're relatively familiar with because you get to a point where your product may not may not be utilized the way you thought it was going to be utilized. Mm-hmm. You see you see it opening up in a new a new direction or in order for it to be sustainable it has to move into a different direction. It has to pivot into something else. Right. Um, and that's the thing is like um, I'm reading a book right now called Lachlan is uh, He's he's a great entrepreneurial mind, incredibly hardworking guy, and he's like obsessed with all these books about like great CEOs and startups yeah. and stuff. And they're really interesting. Read Sam Walton's biography and um, Elon Musk, which is probably my favorite. And right now I'm reading Bad Blood, which mm-hmm. is about Elizabeth. Um, oh shoot, what's her name? Uh, anyway, she started a company called Theranos when she was like 21. And they were making, originally they were going to be making a patch that could do blood tests. And then it turned into a device. And then it turned into like a desktop device. And they raised like, I think they were valued at like $3 billion. But the thing is, it never worked. Mm. And the company went under and their stock was worth nothing. And she's like maybe going to prison, you know? Yeah. And anyway, a really interesting book. But 
The thing is, another good book I read recently that deals with ideas like that on a much grander scale, funnily enough, is called On Grand Strategy by a guy called Gaddis. Fascinating book. Great read. But anyway, that, that book addresses the idea of a pivot in different language, and it talks about a, a sort of metaphorical, the fox and the hedgehog. And the hedgehog has an idea in his head and he digs down on the ground and he just burrows a straight line and he doesn't care what else happens he's got one idea in mind he's myopic he's looking at that and anything that doesn't fit his worldview he discards as meaningless mm -hmm. the fox on the other hand is clever and always aware of his surroundings and changing his tack um, based on new information and his approach to his goal based on new information. And there are benefits to both, but the successful person exists somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was, maybe was it Abraham Lincoln? They, they talk about him at length in the book in the Civil War and the way he deftly maneuvered through the political and military issues that he faced. but. The idea was like, okay, well, if you're trying to uh, march your army from point A to point B, and the quickest route from point A to point B leads you through a swamp, and your army gets bogged down and half of them drown, what's the use of getting there? Because right. you're going to be broken and tired and worthless when you get there. It's all about pivoting and dealing with what, you know, if I grew up wanting to sing Puccini and Verdi. It's like, oh, shit. Well, turns out I really sing Mozart well, but mm -hmm. I'm going to sing Verdi, damn it, I would, I, I, I think I would be struggling uh, and, and, you know, probably not getting some of the opportunities that, that I've had. And so, yeah, you have to pivot in every way. If you got yeah. a voice teacher, it's not working out, pivot. Yeah. If you're, if it turns out that the rep you happen to be really good at singing is Baroque and not Verdi, well, do you want to work or do you want to sing Verdi in a practice room? Yeah. Um, well, that right there. Do you want to work or do you want to sing Verity in a practice room? I mean, I see people consistently complain about the fact that they are not getting the gigs they want. Yeah. Maybe go after different gigs. Right. Then. Right. It doesn't mean that you can't sing. It just means maybe nobody right now is going to hire you to hear you sing this specific thing. Right. But there's yeah. a lot of other rep out there. There's a lot of other venues out there. Um, find find what works. Yeah, and if it's not singing right now, maybe it will be later. I mean, I, I, we were talking about this. There there are a lot of singers with um, uh, with instruments that would be perfect for bigger rep uh, Verdi baritones or yeah. or you know Wagnerian singers who really probably wouldn't hit their stride until their late 30s anyway, yeah. which is not really how the conservatory and young artist world is set up. Right right now and a lot uh i think sandra radvanovsky was was one of these people or no it wasn't her it was christine gerke who was trying to sing mozart and really not having she was getting some work but wasn't having a really great go of it and then eventually had to just cancel everything spent like a year or two studying redoing her technique and then like emerged as this brilliant soprano and sang here in die frau ohne schatten mm -hmm. which is i think my favorite production i've ever seen here it's insane so cool um and i think after opening night yeah, they were like the cool, time, you wanna... and then yeah when when things i hate to use the term but organically fell into place yeah not in the whole Foods sense but in like yeah, yeah. the natural course of things yeah. sort of ran their course anyway yeah she sang opening night of that and they were like cool why don't you come sing brunhilde in the, the ring in a few years and yeah. it's you know you got to take your time you can't force it and um 
there is a way to prosper under almost any circumstances. Yeah. You know? It just may not be initially what you thought. Yeah. Or what you planned. You have to have an open mind. I remember when I was uh, in film school, I was trying to like, re- which is similar to opera in that there is no standard track that will lead to success. Right. Um, and I remember reading, I don't know if it was a book or just an article or something, uh, but it was an interview with Tim Burton, uh, famous director, if you're not aware of Edward Scissorhands and uh, Nightmare Before Christmas and uh, Batman, all that stuff. Anyway, and they said, you know, did you always want to be a director? And he said, no, I never wanted to be a director. Uh, I just wanted to tell stories. And it turns out that my desire to tell stories led me to being a director. And I just had an open mind and took what opportunities came my way. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it's not all dumb luck. Like I said before, luck favors the prepared. Mm -hmm. And um, to that end, I think the most, the single most salient thing that I learned that led to any almost any success I've ever had in my life was uh, well I guess could be most simply boiled down to something that I say a lot to younger singers which is the squeaky wheel gets the oil Mm. and what I mean by that is no matter how well you sing it's probably not going to be the case that someone's going to come knock on your door and say, hey, we heard you're really good. Will you come take this money to sing for us? <laughs> um, you gotta get out there and you gotta hustle your tail off. No matter how good you are or aren't or whatever, when the time is right, go and sing for everybody, everywhere, all the time. Mm-hmm. And if they don't give you an audition, email them every week until they give you one to shut you up. Mm-hmm. And even if they say, stop emailing me, shut up, at least they know who you are. Yeah. And they'll hear you someplace, somewhere. I mean, I graduated from college with a film degree and a music minor, which didn't exactly open the gates to prosperity. And so I spent like my last few hundred bucks on bartending school. <laughs> and it was before I had a smartphone. So I drove up to LA from Orange County, I think three or four days in a row, went to the public library, printed off a list of every bar that was near a studio and and a bunch of resumes and went around handing out resumes at all these bars. Just showed up, handed out a resume. Um, and eventually one of them called me back and was like, ah, our guy quit. Can you work tonight? So I was like, hell yeah. Came in and I worked there for three months and just hustled every single dude that came in for lunch from the studio. And some guy from Paramount gave me his email address and I emailed him couple times a week until they gave me a job interview got the job quit the bar worked my way up there for two and a half years and my soul was dying so I quit came back to music and I remember my last day at Paramount was January 28th 2011 and uh, before I left the studio lot I called up my voice teacher from college Patrick Gazer if you live in Southern California he's the best um, and I was like remember how you were always like you should be a singer you you're a tenor you're tall I was like all right you win. Let's give this a shot. You know, I think I was like 20, 26 or 25, maybe. Uh, anyway, I couldn't afford voice lessons. So I went down and helped him drywall his garage in exchange for voice lessons. I got on Lori's list, which I don't know if that still exists, but it was like church gigs and auditions. It was kind of like Yap Tracker for like, like gigs. Um, but yeah, Yap Tracker, Lori's list. And I looked up basically every audition that was in 50 miles of me. And I went to almost every one of them. Yeah. I just went out and sang for 
pretty goddamn near everybody who would listen. Yeah. And one guy said, oh, this is great. You should talk to my friend. I went and auditioned for that guy. And he said, I went to Juilliard with a guy named Josh Winograd. I don't have his email anymore. Look him up. Tell him I said you should sing for him. Turns out he runs the Young Artist Program at LA Opera. Yep. I sang for him. Two weeks later, I was singing for Placido. I was in the Young Artist Program. And that was tremendous. Uh, after two years there, I felt like I'd learned a lot, but I didn't feel like I was ready to go out into the wider world. So I knew a couple of people at the Met, and I emailed them once a week for a couple of months until they said, fine, come audition for Lindemann. <laughs> and I auditioned for Lindemann, and the guy said, well, we're kind of full up for next year. We already have some tenors. I don't know. How would you feel about coming in a year or two? Um, but the last step of that audition process was an audition for uh, the former music director here, James Levine. And I sang for him, and he was like, oh, yeah, no, you need to be in the program. And it was great. And, like, that's, you know, I mean, a lot of it is luck. Again, to say it a third time, luck favors the prepared. But, dude. But look at how many people you went through to get to even sing for one of those A-listers. Yeah. Right? I mean, it wasn't like. It just bothers the heck out of me when, you know, there, there are a few singers I know who have said, oh, gee, you know, I'm about to sign with this agent who I'm not really too sure about. And I was like, well, who do you want to work with? And they said, oh, well, you know, I've, I've had a, a couple friends say, oh, well, the guy, your agent is somebody who I would love to love to talk to. And so I called my agent on the spot and said, when you're in New York next, would you hear this person? And he goes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then I followed up with some of those people later and I said, how'd the audition go? And they said, oh, well, you know, I couldn't fit it into my schedule. And it's like, well, all right, well, good luck then. You know, I mean, no, no disrespect or anything like that, but I mean... Uh, People who don't do everything they can think of to get out there and make it happen. Yeah. I hope it still happens for them, but I don't feel bad when it... I, I, it's not that I don't feel bad, but you feel a little bit less sorry for people that when it doesn't work out when you know that they've just been sitting there waiting for it to happen. We, uh, we ran the numbers... Some of us ran the numbers last year about um, the rejection stats for the opera industry. And if you go by the equation that we all learned in undergrad, which is do this, 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 then this, then this, mm -hmm. and then you have a career. Um, if you do that, totally cold, and that, that's just the way you do things. The rejection rate in opera is over 97%. Yeah, wow. But what you talked about is networking at a ridiculous level. Well, it wasn't even networking. I wasn't like going to parties and shaking well, no, hands, no, no. But, but just but, getting out there and singing you, for people. But that's what it is. And then, but the difference is that not only did you meet those people and find out what they do, but you had follow through. And you know, I have I have people that have had substantial um, meetings with people that really loved their voice. Um, there's there's one client that I had a while ago who um, met Danny Elfman. Kind of oh, at cool. random. They sang for, uh, I think it was a funeral, actually. And Danny Elfman was there. Yeah. Pulled this person aside later and was like, I loved your voice. I loved your interpretation of this piece. We should chat about doing something together. Here's my information. Yeah. Um, next time you're in London, let's try and, or I'm here, let's try and coordinate something. And they didn't do anything with that. I'm I like, mean, that is crazy. But, that is but crazy. how many times could you have been told, look this person up, sing for them? Yeah. And you could have done exactly what your friends have done and said, well, it just didn't quite fit into my schedule. Well, then a career probably isn't going to fit into your life. Exactly. <laughs> but you turn, you changed those numbers by following through on the networking that happened. Well, so you yeah, shifted those numbers gonna... from the 97 rejection rate to with networking, we figured out it can be closer to like 65 
Yeah. Between 52 and 65%. Because you are singing for people in a smarter way rather than just hoping for the best. Right. Well, <laughs> and that, that tenacity, I find, is... Um, you know, I don't. I only have my experience to go on. I don't have like a broad set of empirical numbers or anything like that. But I do notice a demonstrable tenacity uh, that many of the singers I end up working with uh, around the world uh, happen to have in common, and mm-hmm. I don't find that to be a coincidence. Absolutely. So, um, but that said, I mean, all of that sort of networking and like hitting the pavement kind of shit aside. Um, again, you have to go back to um, find a voice teacher who speaks your language, yeah. uh, whose singers, you like their singing, who have careers, who are independent, and you know they don't have to have their voice teacher in the dressing room with them warming up. They can sort of solve their own problems. Yes. And um, who, who can teach you to be a, a smart, independent singer. Anyway... If you can find that, if they're at some teeny-weeny school you've never heard of, that's going to be still more valuable than a degree from some fancy fancy institution with a voice teacher who will teach you interpretation but not nuts and bolts, right. you know? And the only thing that uh, – the, the, the second most important thing to that is uh, stage time, hopefully finding an opportunity to be on stage singing an entire opera right. with an orchestra because that is, um, you know – it's like in film school. A lot of people graduated film school and never made a film. Right. Uh, and that's crazy. I yeah. mean, it's, it's a lot harder in, in opera to do that, but the experience of getting a whole role up on its feet, pacing yourself through the evening, and, uh, and, and being with the orchestra and everything is, is really, really invaluable. So, you know, on, on the, um, the flip side of the potentially maybe rather severe picture we're painting about getting work in this field, <laughs> uh, while there are more people studying to be opera singers now than I think there probably ever have been, uh, I don't think there have ever been as many opera companies and opportunities as there have been. Not that all of them are wonderful, phenomenal opportunities, but... Uh, there, there are more now than I think there have been in the past. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Met used to go on tour because there were no regional opera companies. Yeah. And granted, some have gone under in the last decade, but also uh, some other interesting ones have uh, have sprung up. And uh, yeah, there's tons of opportunity out there. Yeah. Well, I know you've got to get going shortly. Yeah, I got to so we'll wrap this up. Hit the road. This was really nice to sit and chat with you, man. Yeah, I appreciate it very much. Yeah. And, uh, Hope I didn't ramble too much. Not at all. I think the Kings County. For more information about today's guest, visit our website at operabizpodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show with two interview episodes and two social media soundbites each month. You can find me directly on Instagram at The Beard and Lens, and the podcast Instagram is at Opera Biz. Thanks for listening to the Opera Biz Podcast.